is Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore. Remote Zone. It's back, everybody. It's Lockdown Vibes. I'm in my gaff. Adam's in his gaff as well. And the reason for this is simple. Our guest was too inconsiderate to make the three, I guess, three and a half hour, is it? Uh, trip from Cork. It's no encore OG, one of my best friends in the entire world. He's back. It's Cullum O'Regan. I leave Cork for nobody. How's it going, buddy? You well? I'm good, yeah. So why didn't you? Like, There's a nice train journey there, you know, you could have got, I'm sure. I will definitely come up at some stage in the future. I hadn't actually realised that you were making uh, a return to remote recording just for me. Um, I'll, I'll be there in person next time, I promise. You're probably the only person. I mean, unless it was, you know, someone in America or something. But, like, generally, the, the rule is get to the fucking studio. But this week, it's, uh, yeah, so it's remote funding game. So if there's any kind of weird sound discrepancies in my room, because sometimes the hot press to my left goes off. Sometimes, you know, people are screaming. You never know. We'll do our best. Uh, anyway, listen, Halloween's been and gone. How was it for you? Uh, fairly uneventful. We ran out of candy, uh, we had to turn the lights off and shut the blinds and just hope that there were no latecomers. I uh, I stayed away entirely. I, I just avoided my house. I wasn't home until late and it was grand. But listen, uh, what are we talking about on this episode, Colm? You've selected a top five for us. What is it? It's in the title. Everyone knows, but you might as well just lay it up. Yeah, we have my top five final albums um, as prompted by a few of the discussion points of this week, most notably, I suppose, the Beatles bringing out their final track ever. Um, thought it was a good time to look back at uh, how certain artists said goodbye. Yep, that's fair. You know, you also teed up the news section perfectly. Let's hit the sting and then listen to the Beatles after that, shall we? Start spreading the news. And now, a plucky young quartet hailing from the streets of Merseyside, I give you the Beatles. the Beatles, the much-vaunted, long-awaited final, quote-unquote, final song from the band, stitched together from, a, I guess, a resurrected recording of a John Lennon song from the 70s, and I believe some footage from the Peter Jackson documentary Get Back, and some fresh, I guess, production touches by both Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and of course, the digital elephant in the room here, the use of artificial intelligence to effectively, I guess, save Lennon's vocal, redo it, I don't know. Liam Gallagher says it's heartwarming. What does Colin O'Regan think? I have to say that I quite liked it. Um, it's one, obviously, it came out today at time of recording. Like uh, an hour ago before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, and, and I suppose the bigger thing is that, you know, like everybody is going to listen to this song about kind of wanting to be together again. And it's the Beatles' final song, and you think, oh, it's a song about the Beatles. And it, it might be, it, it also might not be. It's one of those things where a little bit of time and kind of placing it in an 
oeuvre of sorts in terms of like where it sits within their careers and timelines and all the rest of it might make a little bit more sense of it. Um, but for what it is, I thought it's a very nice song and it it doesn't sound weird. Like when you're told they're using AI to separate the vocals and so on and so forth. And I know they did this kind of back in the late 90s, albeit with sort of really rudimentary technology and it ended up with John Lennon sounding a bit like a ghost. That's not <laughs> happening here at least. So, you, you know, points for that. Um, do, do we have a problem though with this AI proliferation? I was on uh, the radio this week and I was kind of making the point and I didn't throw out my usual, I'm not a big fan of the Beatles thing. I didn't feel it was necessary. Keep it to the podcast. Sure. Um, I just, I like, I think people have a problem with this. I kind of don't because like I say, band members are involved. It has an origin story. I don't know how much construction work was done. Maybe Adam can shed some production on light on what it sounds on what to his ears. But uh, do we think that there's a problem invoking AI when it comes to a band as sacred as the Beatles, Adam? Um, I don't think so because I think fundamentally the approach here is very different. I think that the issue with AI, like writing songs, quote unquote, writing songs or creating songs from scratch, is the problem because that's what's going to. I suppose, affect the industry at large in the opinion of a lot of people. And to be honest, I'm kind of in that school as well. I do believe that um, AI-generated music like that will be, you know, um, will be very impactful in terms of how it affects the, you know, physical human being songwriters and, you know. But this is very different because this is like just something that was used for like an algorithmic thing that was used to like strip, separate parts these things have been around for a while, by the way. I don't know, like Peter Jackson didn't discover this. I'm sorry to like ruin everybody, ruin everybody's um, whole outlook on this. He is not the saving grace of the Beatles. He is not the sixth Beatle after George Martin, of course. But, um, you know, this technology has been around for a while. Surprised it hasn't been done sooner, but I, I think the whole story behind the fact that it came off the back of the documentary and, you know, the... I, the, the storied past that the Beatles have, and the fact that this is coming out now in twenty twenty three, like it is good. It's an like it's a good news story, you know. Um, and I like with Colum, you know, I or Colum, excuse me. Um, I quite liked the song. I quite actually really enjoyed it. George Martin Jr. By the way, was um, involved in the production and the um, and the string arrangement. I believe, I believe, could be wrong there. I can't believe uh, Pete Best relegated now to seventh Beatle, Adam. You're just tumbling this man's legacy down a fucking well. Jesus. He did it to himself. Um, yeah, Cullum, will, will, like, is this an on repeat for you or is it just a one and done? Is it a final song? I mean, <laughs> I guess I will revisit it. It is an interesting question as well of whether it's a final, final song because as Adam said, like, you know, now that, this technology is, and I suppose it has been there, but like it's good enough to sort of strip uh, different components and presumably take just about any sort of patchy demo and make something of it. Will the temptation be there in the future? Um, I suppose one other reason why I kind of like felt safe uh, in those regards here was that like it was under the eye of McCartney and Starr, who, you know, are not exactly kind of money-grabbing ne'er-do-wells when it comes to the Beatles. If and when they are out of the picture, you do kind of worry about what happens when, you know, estates are getting involved or somebody who owns publishing rights kind of sees a quick buck to be made. That, perhaps, is where the, the, the trouble lies. 
Yeah, that's and do you know what you said exactly what I was going to jump in with there with the you know the estate of someone getting involved. Um, like you think of you think of the musicians who've you know left behind massive catalogs like Prince. No doubt Michael Jackson's left a lot. Um, Freddie Mercury probably has set like hundreds, I'd say, of unreleased things, and it just like really does open the. It does open the world where like, you know, in a good space that could be um, used for good, but it can also be taken advantage of. And I think that's the that's the kind of weird zone that we're in right now. Well, Liam Gallagher, a man now stranger to weirdness, did go on social media and did say, now and then is absolutely incredible, biblical, celestial, heartbreaking and heartwarming all at the same time. He's got away with words, doesn't he? Do we think this is going to get Oasis back together? <laughs> I think money is going to get Oasis back together. He said, long live the Beatles. And then he responded to a fan who recalled how emotional the process must have been for the surviving members of the Beatles. And Liam Gallagher said, very sad, but beautiful at the same time. This is life. I guess it's confusingly delightful all at the same time. And then finally, uh, he declared his love for the band as a whole. And he said, quote, the Beatles could shit in my handbag. I'd still hide my polo mints in there, which raises all kinds of disgusting questions that we won't get into. But we'll move real quick. I went to see the new David Fincher film of the weekend. Michael Fassbender's in it. It's his first film role. Adam, you were there with me. It, yes, we, we discussed went. this afterwards. We went to the Cinematheque. We great. went to the Cinematheque. Uh, Adam is obsessed with calling it the Cinematheque. Um, <laughs> it's a great movie, The Killer. Really, really good. It'll be on Netflix soon, but go see it in the cinema if you can. Uh, Cullen, what, do you know Michael Fassbender's last film before this, when it was out? Uh, no, no, is the simple answer. Is it's the a, version of Macbeth? No, no, no. That was, I think that was 2015. I love that one. Um, no, it was like X-Men Dark Phoenix. And then he took a long hiatus and I can't blame him. I think he was just, you know, getting into family life. But he's back now. He's back in a big way. He's back in this killer movie. He's got a rubbish looking Taika Waititi comedy coming up about football. And, and this really surprised me. I thought this was a fake headline during the week. As reported exclusively by Variety in, in Hollywood, you know, kind of trade Bible over there. Uh, Michael Fassbender is set to star in a biopic about... Kneecap, the incredible Irish language rap group who caused no end of controversy wherever they go. Um, Build as a raucous anti-establishment comedy. It's going to be, the film is going to be called Kneecap, which I, I don't know. I, I think we could have had a bit more imagination there. Um, but yeah, it, it will star the real life band members, Mo Cara, Mowgli Bop and DJ Provi as heightened versions of themselves. Uh, according to Variety, the group came to fame in 2018 for their blend of nationalist Irish rap, which often dealt with the gritty reality of growing up in Northern Ireland after the civil conflict known as the Troubles. Um, what do you reckon about this? Uh, I mean, first things first, having kind of tried to tee up Derry Girls for a non-Irish viewer and kind of realising how difficult it can be to pick apart some of the strands of political and cultural differences. If we're sending this international, it's going to take a hell of a lot of explaining. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I like Kneecap. They're arch satirists and they're very funny and they're very intelligent. I always enjoy whenever anybody comes with them. They usually get slapped back down and they welcome on this program anytime, of course. But I just don't know how this will translate to a film. You know, it's like maybe like a cartoon. But no, it's a feature-length live-action movie. So uh, it's being made by a director who's worked on their music videos before. And he says, for those who already know these guys as musicians, I promise it'd be a film true to their hedonistic and anarchic soul. And for those who haven't yet heard of Kneecap, well, buckle up. Which is, you know, a good sell, I would say. But yeah, I mean, not what I was expecting. Certainly not from Michael Fassbender. 
No, although I mean, like he did play Bobby Sands in that Hunger film, didn't he? So, and he played Frank. You know, remember Frank? He wore that hat, the helmet thing, the mask, whatever <laughs> sure. the fuck you call it. I hated that movie. But yeah, no, he's 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 not against an experimental jaunt, you know. Oh no, certainly not. But I was just wondering if he's eyeing up a few mu- murals at this stage, Maybe. just becoming a, a a Belfast nationalist hero. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Um, but one thing that isn't happening is the return of my beloved Ozfest. Oh. Remember, it had one Irish go-round, the festival run by the Osbournes. Um, why did it go under many years later? Like I say, it only came here once, but it was a big deal in the States. Sharon Osborne has talked about this on the Osbournes podcast, which I wasn't aware was the thing. Did you know this? No, I didn't. It says it's recently revived. And I was like, what? And it's like episode 283 or something. So they've been going for as long as us, maybe. Um, she's alongside Ozzy and children Kelly and Jack. And she basically said that... Um, when the festival came to an end, it was a very weird beast because all the bands were our mates, but the managers were greedy. And for some reason, they thought we were making billions on it and we weren't. We made a profit, but we couldn't retire on it. And managers and agents wanted more and more and more. It wasn't cost effective and that's why we stopped it. She said one unnamed band um, at the second OzFest they did, or the third one, wouldn't go on stage until I agreed to give them 10,000 more dollars. And they were holding everything up, and I said, of course, of course I'll give it to you. She says in the end that she didn't give them the money, which led to a falling out. Now, my question about this is, what's the worst bit of etiquette there? Is it gouging someone for 10 grand, or the gougee not paying up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the professional wrestling fan fan in me does appreciate the Jeff Jarrett move of kind of like getting to Gorilla and then holding them (laughs) hostage, like... (laughs) I drew the house. I'm not going out there unless you sweeten the deal. Yeah, and I mean, like, I don't know, to an extent, it, like, I wonder how this doesn't happen more often with festivals as such, because, like, okay, you start off and you get a bunch of bands together and the the combined force brings the crowd. But, like, the next summer, they're all going to want to play their own headline gigs, right? So you've probably got to start nurturing new talent or start diversifying in some way which i guess might have been an issue here for these acts that you had previously if they're going to come back they're going to demand a bigger stage placement and a bigger fee which is understandable i mean like you know you and i have worked within the confines of the music industry to some extent but one thing neither of us have ever done and i wonder if we'd be cut out for it is working on a festival i know like festivals especially big ones picnic they get a lot of slagging from myself very much included but the logistics of these things must be a fucking nightmare oh yeah Absolutely. And I mean, like, there is also a kind of a hint in this where Sharon Osbourne does point out that, like, all of the bands were their mates, which probably complicates issues then as well when you're actually looking at sort of hard numbers and even, as it were, moving on from some of them if the maths don't make sense anymore. Yeah, well, something that doesn't make any sense is the return of our beloved Creed. Of course, (laughs) you know, we've been talking about this lately. Where do you stand on Scott Stapp and his Merry Men? I mean, now. In general, legacy. I I don't know. I mean, like, I, I love a good kind of fist-clenching anthem. And so back well, in the day... I've got one for you. I've got one for you right now. Hit it, Adam. Can you take me See, right there, I am picturing Scott Stapp at Cowboys Stadium, Thanksgiving, <laughs> aerialists spinning through the sky and 80,000 American football fans without a clue of what's happening. 
Why did I always think that that was the Super Bowl? That they had actually ascended to such a level of fame that they played the Super Bowl <laughs> No, <laughs> No, it wasn't even. It was Thanksgiving because, like, yeah, and, and that's the thing, you see, like, Super Bowl, like, you know the concert's coming and you kind of expect something, high production and all the rest of it. This was, like, close to just a normal game and the crowd is like, we were not warned about this. We did not see this coming. Best day um, ever. But, yeah, like, Creed have been completely off the map for an incredibly long time now. 2009 was the last time that they released an album. I think 2012 was the last time that they gigged together. And now they are back with, it should be said, a quite sort of self-effacing summer of 99 tour. They're, they're, They're freely admitting that it's kind of 25 years after the heyday. They're doing 40 cities in North America in 2024. This is incredible news. How many are we going to go to, do you think? I'll book the flights. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. I think before the uh, tour starts, they're doing a cruise. Oh, they are. Yeah, they are. That's absolutely and insane. That that sounds like, I mean, you and I, I think we've discussed on this podcast before our love of the GQ story of the Kid Rock cruise. One of the greatest pieces of music journalism and a direct inspiration on me doing the Picture This Five Nights thing. Well, I think the Creed cruise would be every bit as worthy of that treatment. It's also as wild, like, wild that they're succeeding where Slipknot failed. Because remember, Slipknot were going to do a cruise, then the pandemic happened. I was trying to get on that thing, and I was told no, because it costs so much money. I was like, oh, come on, please. <laughs> so didn't the, bur- the perfect counter-argument. Uh, yeah, it's a fair enough one, logistics and money. Um, get this right. Many of these upcoming Creed shows will feature support. This is ridiculous. Support from three doors down. Like, oh my God, here without you, baby. You kidding me? They'll also have Finger Eleven, a band I'm kind of low-key obsessed with. Here's why. Just for one thing. What a song. What a weird band. Canadian band. They got a few songs I quite like. They actually, do you know what, do you know what they did call them in, in 2003, I want to say? What wrestler, I, what professional wrestler in WWE did they do a theme song for? I don't know. Kane. They did Slow Chemical, his best ever theme. Oh, wow. Yep. They've huh. hidden, hidden depths, those boys. Uh, additional support will come from Hugh Carr's beloved Daughtry, a band called Tonic, another band called Big Wreck, and another band of whom I, I love one and only song. And it goes a bit like this. Some of the most country shit I've ever heard in my life. Hang it's, on a second. That no, band I are called can't. Switchfoot, by the way, and you have not heard country shit until I was <laughs> at a bar last night, a popular Dublin city centre bar, and I can't get over it. The auto-tuned, wild, shit, modern country radio rock that was being blared, and it was just me and one other person in the bar. It was clearly the barman's playlist, and I was like, this is absolutely obscene. And speaking of playlists, by the way, I can't believe this happened. I was out the other night, right, in another Dublin city centre night spot, and... Um, I was sitting there and I was listening to the tunes and along came the Deftones cover of Drive, followed by Copy of A by Nine Inch Nails, followed by Three Libras by A Perfect Circle. And I was like, what's happening? Someone knew you were there. Someone 100% knew you were there, yeah. That was was a curated playlist, I believe. I went up to the bar staff and I was like, excuse me, I was like, whose music is this? Do you know who I am? (laughs) Range down praise upon them. I, I was just 
shocked, blown away. Could not believe it. Creed did not feature, though, sadly, but we can work on that. If you're listening, bar staff of Crowbar, please stick Creed on the playlist. Genuinely on that. I mean, like, do, do Creed have any cultural cachet for anyone, say, below the age of 30? Probably not, no. But there's the, every chance that they can now, you know? Yeah. I, I, like, I was just trying to picture the crowd for these gigs, like, and because they weren't exactly Middle appealing to kind of a young, teeny bopper crowd 15 years ago when they were active. So, yeah, I don't, maybe the cruise is their target audience now. <laughs> Growing with your fans, is, that's what that's called. <laughs> I wonder though, Cullum, should we also hit the UK for a jaunt? Because um, everyone's favourite boy band, Blue, have announced a career-spanning tour, which will take place across the UK throughout April of May and next year, dubbed the Greatest Hits Tour. So presumably that's like a 10-minute gig, what do you reckon? All rise uh, on repeat for like, what, half an hour? That's it? So get this, right? The run of shows is said to be uh, celebrating Blue's decades-long presence in the music industry. Excuse me, what kind of false narrative are these people trying to peddle? The set list will encompass the full range of their discography from, from their smash hit All Rise to more recent efforts on last year's Heart and Soul. More recent efforts? They can't name a, a second song. Effort. They can't name a second song. One of them was on Good Morning Britain and he said, I have some great news that won't leave you feeling blue because we're putting on a special tour. I can't get on board with this at all. He also said to expect plenty of stories since there's, quote, been a lot happening in the last two decades. He is correct on that one. And any opportunity to bring back a hell of a story, and I sincerely hope there are people listening to this who've never heard what I'm about to say. I think Cullum knows this one from back in the day, do you? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I'm still more than happy to go back, though. So... Lee Ryan from Blue. This is uh, October 26, 2001. Uh, apologised for remarks he made in the Sun newspaper, claiming that the terrorist strikes against New York, that being 9-11, quote, had been blown out of all proportion. So we needed Lee Ryan to weigh in on this political issue for sure. Uh, he, and boy, did he weigh in. He asked the question, who gives a fuck about New York when elephants are being killed? To the consternation of his three bandmates, Ryan went on to say, quote, they are ignoring animals that are more important. Animals need saving and that's more important. This New York thing is being blown out of all proportion. This happened. This interview was given and printed and subsequently retracted via the medium of apology. Do you remember? Well, yeah, his retraction is excellent as well, where he said, I'm not that good with words and I get mixed up. Yes, actually, can you uh, scroll down there and can you please read out the statement in full, which, okay. which, which ran on um, officialblue.com at the time. I'll try to put on my pious voice for this, I suppose. If um, I can find the instrumental of All Rise, I'll put it as a bed underneath this. By now you might have heard about the stupid comments I made the other day to the Sun newspaper. I just wanted to say to you all how sorry I am. I can't believe I said it. I didn't even mean it like that. And the second I said it, it was like, oh my God. That isn't what I meant. All I can say is that since we got back from New York, we've all been asked again and again about our experiences there. And to be honest, what we saw in New York was so bad that I've always tried to avoid talking about it. New York was awful and I hate myself that people might think I don't care. I cried my eyes out when I watched the terrors collapse, but I just don't want to go on about it as if I've something important to say about this tragedy. And so in my stupid, aggressive way, I tried to steer the conversation onto other topics. I'm not good with words and I get mixed up, but I know what I'm saying when I say, I'm sorry. 
Now, I will say that last section, I'm not good with words and I get mixed up. I know what I'm saying when I say I'm sorry. They're great lyrics for a blues Fantastic song. Fantastic lyrics, yeah. They should have used them. They should have leaned into this. Call it Elephant Pain or something. And listen. Elephant in um, the room. <laughs> elephant in the room. If, um, if this happened today, would he have put that out on a notes app statement on Twitter? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like, I just... What an astonishing man. An astonishing turn of events right there. It must be said. That's um, fantastic. I actually didn't know that that happened, so... I yeah. was, I'm, I'm aghast and somewhat entertained by, Also, like, know. they were there, like, like, what did he see that was so awful? The event had occurred. Oh, no, 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 they, they were in New York when it happened. What? Yeah. Where? Sorry, I mean, presumably it? not right <laughs> there, but... Well, like, fucking Building 7. Like, I mean, that's mental. Anyway, look, listen, last oh, news story, uh, Tupac, I just saw on the way over there that the guy who was arrested for the Tupac murder has pleaded not guilty, but um, apparently two pieces of memorabilia from his time in prison, Tupac's that is, are set to go up for auction. According to a listing on Moments in Time, a never-before-seen mugshot and prison ID are available for interested buyers to bid on, and according to TMZ, where else, the mugshot could fetch 35000 American dollars, and his prison ID, which includes his photograph, name, <clears throat> excuse me, ID number, height, eyes and hair colour, is expected to go for a much higher bid at around $75,000. Colin, what do you reckon? I mean, just in general, I don't get this kind of collectible stuff. I mean, obviously they're significant items given, you know, who they're attached to. Um, but yeah, it's not for me. So, like, memorabilia in general. I mean, I wonder, yeah. like, you know, I think Chris DeBerg apparently has, like, the chestburster from Alien or something. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I might take that uh, that fancy leather jacket that he wore, especially for the interviewer that oh, one time. That's, that's the greatest thing of all time. Let me dig out that quote. Uh, you keep talking, I'll find that quote. There is one kind of collection thing which caught my eye in the past little while. Um, listeners of this show will know that I'm a big American football fan, and there's a guy called Jim Ursay. He owns the Indianapolis Colts. But he also has uh, what is uninventively called the Jim Irsay Collection, which goes on tour and it goes like uh, exhibitions free of charge. It's, I can only describe it as like Planet Hollywood, except with an unlimited budget and like a mild case of ADHD, <laughs> because it's just like he's found all the stuff that he thinks would be awesome to own and put it together in one collection. So like there's a lot of guitars, it's like a drum kit from Ringo Starr and one of Elton John's pianos. There's also like a copy of the direct declaration of independence. There's the original manuscript from On the Road. There's a hat that JFK was going to be getting the day he was killed. Um, Miles Davis's trumpet, the saddle from Secretariat and winning the Triple Crown. Just going to jump in and stop you there. Hang on a second. The hat that JFK was going to buy the day he was killed yes. was going to be presented with. So he was on his way to like something in Dallas where the mayor was going to give him a Stetson as a commemoration of his visit to Dallas. I don't know and if, if that, like, you can sell that for a lot of money if, absolutely if he's been, not. If he's been shot in the head before he gets to the hat. Yeah, if he's I, wearing the hat, that's different. But the hat becomes null and void at that point for so many reasons. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't get the collecting thing. I wouldn't have bought it. Like, how do you present that to someone? Like, See this? JFK almost wore this, but due to force majeure, unfortunately, he didn't get to. 
It cost me $100,000. Yeah, you see this jar of air that I have? This is the air that JFK could have breathed if he was still alive after he got shot in Dallas. Do you know what I mean? Uh, real grand. quick, Cullum, before I dig out this Christopher Berg quote again, um, we American football, you know, you're on briefly, Taylor Swift, big Taylor Swift fan, Collision. Uh, have you gone to see the Eras tour in the cinema? And will you be going to the actual tour next year? I have not seen the Eras tour in the cinema. I don't think I would, to be honest. It, it's too... It feels like a kind of a clash of things, really, with the excitement of a live concert and the, you know, general well-behavedness of sitting in a cinema, and I'm not sure how I'll handle uh, that combination. I think people are those seats, man. I've seen people dancing in the front fucking row. That's what I mean, though. I'm, I'm not sure that I can actually make that leap myself. Um, as for the gigs themselves next summer uh if anybody's listening and has some spare tickets hit me up um unsuccessful efforts uh, a couple of months ago uh let's wait and see i suppose right yeah, that's Colin Morrigan Evermore Folklore at rocketmail.net if you come across <laughs> some tickets. I have the Christa Berg thing before we move to our top five. Um, this is from a decade-old interview in the UK Independent by Deborah Ross. Don't know what he's promoting this time, but the headline in the UK Independent is Christa Berg, quote, I love myself. I'm not saying this in a narcissistic way, end quote. <laughs> and here is the first uh, few paragraphs of the article, which is just absolutely sensational. We begin. I meet Christoberg, the singer-songwriter, and a man for whom, surely, the blouse-on-style leather jacket was invented, at a hotel just outside Enniskerry, a small village in County Wicklow, Ireland, nearby to where he lives, and where, somewhat gratifyingly, he arrives wearing not only a blouse-on-style leather jacket, but a shiny black one that is new on today. It's Hugo Boss, he says. He's only just bought it, he adds. Quote, first time on, just for you, he concludes. Great, I say, largely because I'm stuck for anything else to say. Terrific, well done. We settle at a table. Tea for him, coffee for me. He is otherwise wearing brown cords and a royal blue cable knit sweater. Cashmere, he says, from Monaghan's. He helpfully spells it out. M-O-N-A-G-H-A-N-S. He is small, brackets, five foot six inches, close brackets, with tiny hands and the sort of hair that doesn't quite have the courage of its convictions, doesn't quite have the oomph to make it to full mullet. He is certainly uber-friendly, at least initially. He even squeezes my knee a couple of times, which is interesting. He also says, <laughs> shall I call you... <laughs> interesting. That's a great word to use there, isn't it? He also says, shall I call you Debbie? I say, I'd rather you didn't. He says, does no one call you Debbie? No, I tell him. He then asks, rather inexplicably, not even your husband, when he's trying to fix the dishwasher. I say, if you knew my husband, you'd know he's not the sort of man who can fix dishwashers. He says, I can fix dishwashers. I was brought up in a castle with no money and lots of imagination. I learned a lot about plumbing at an early age. It's interesting and actually very logical. There we go. Oh, God. Oh. Viewers who can't see, uh, Cullum was off camera in tears that whole in hysterics. time. Yeah. Well, he's going to have to take center stage now, guys, because uh, it's a top five. It's Cullum special. I have some honorable mentions, but I don't have a top five this week due to Act of God. However, Cullum was going to lead the line here. So set the scene again. Final albums, you say. And again, what qualifies, what doesn't? Well, in terms of what qualifies, it's the last album that an act releases... Uh, I suppose I find this one kind of interesting because last albums are, first of all, very often going to be kind of tainted with some sort of negativity, right? If it's a band, it could be a breakup. It could be a death. Um, th there's often going to be 
sort of waning creative powers as people come towards the end of their careers. And so a lot of last albums are frankly just not all that good. Uh, And then you've got some which are great, but then leave behind a sort of a a what-if scenario where, you know, you can say you always leave them wanting more, but uh, sometimes we really do want more. Um, I did allow one-and-dones, although, frankly, actively avoided any more than one of those. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, have a bit of variety in my selections. Yeah, one last question for you. I mean, like, in this strange world of the music business, which I think is quite like the pro wrestling business in that regard, this is kind of like the retirement match, you know? Do musicians ever really stop? Does it actually take the sweet kiss of death to make sure that there's no more music? Uh, No, although looking through my list, I think there's only one, uh, well, I guess technically two uh, possibilities of uh, another album coming, but uh, I wouldn't really put my money on either of them, as uh, as I guess we'll find out. Okay, well, look, put the needle on your number five, please. Well, yeah, and frankly, this is uh, turning into a bit of a motif for this show. Uh, it came up earlier, and now it's back at number five. She Yes, they might have a new single out, but they will never have another album out. It is the Beatles and Let It Be, their final record. I know there's going to be some Beatles historians out there being like, actually, they recorded Abbey Road after that. And I know, but they released Let It Be afterwards. I was tempted to skirt those rules and go with Abbey Road just so I could play Maxwell Silver Hammer at you, Dave. Oh, uh, she did. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, listen, as as Adam said, not only, you know, does this album have its sort of cultural impact from the time, but because of the Peter Jackson documentary and everything else besides, it's now fully entered this sort of cultural lore. It probably leaves little enough light for a humble podcaster to shed, given that uh, the Lord of the Rings director spent eight hours unpicking the thing. But um, as a record, I suppose, like everybody knows about the tension knows about the genius, knows about the kind of troubled creative process and how that does shine through in a lot of the finished product. Now, obviously, a lot of it is very different as well, given that it landed in the hands of Phil Spector, who did his best slash worst when it came to arrangements and orchestration and kind of ticked off Paul McCartney in the process. But You could also say that he did his best slash worst with uh, his life in general. Rather, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure how to carry on with that. Great. Just carry on. Just great. Fast terrific. Um, <laughs> well done, I say. But, uh, yeah, but so, like, it does bear, I suppose, a lot of the hallmarks of a, a last album in that it is strained and it's controversial and it's troublesome and obviously is uh, still being in some uh, shape or form revisited. But, like, okay, so did you watch the documentary, all eight hours I, of it? I did, yeah. It took me a long time, actually. If I remember correctly, most people I know watched it over Christmas two years ago, and that was an away leg for me, so it wasn't until about March that I managed to carve out the time. You, you, can, you can't watch Beatles documentaries in, in Norway, no? That's just a, no, a, a no-go zone? 
Well, I don't think the in-laws would have been very impressed if I rocked up and spent eight hours on their Disney Plus subscription. Like, kind of feel like it's a thing that you would do, though. Like, I can see it. I can see a hungover column enjoying a Nordic vista in the background and, you know, the recolored masterwork of the Beatles in the foreground. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. People have kept saying to me, like, oh, you got to watch it, Dave. And we all know my answer. But, like, I am, I'm not going to lie. The curiosity is starting to slightly creep in. Should I? Would I get anything out of it as a non-Beatles lover? I mean, I think you would. Like, like this is the other thing that, like, obviously, I, I know how you feel about the Beatles. The reason why they belong on a list like this and the reason why I think you'll still get something out of something like that documentary is that, like, even at the end, even when they were at kind of, like, their most fraught and the recordings were at their most troublesome, they're still a level of genius that, at the very least, hasn't waned from their heyday. And and I think that is, as I said at the outset, kind of one of those things with a lot of legacy artists, you're going to see things drop off at the end, and especially once sort of fraught tensions and all the rest of it come into it. That's not the case with the Beatles, and that's not the case with this record, or at least not to the point where it's actually dragging things down. It probably made things a little bit more interesting. It probably caused more uh, arguments and disputes between the group, and obviously contributed to the fact that they all went their separate ways shortly afterwards. But uh, the results are still pretty staggering, um, you know, in the context of, frankly, what anyone else can do in their best days possible. Who's, uh, who's your favourite Beatle? Uh, probably Paul. Maybe just because I've had an actual chance to kind of, you know, spend time with him, so to speak, in my tell, adult life. Tell us about this immediately, please. N- no, as in, not that I've hung out with him, That's but as in, like, like, no, but as, as, as in, like... No, but as in, like... Christy Berg interview, you know? <laughs> no, sorry, what, what I mean is that, like, you know, he's an actual part of the world while I'm an adult. So where, is Ringo just, Starr? Uh, yeah, I mean... I, I don't seem to be a huge fan of Ringo. I, my le- my letters to Ringo were delivered after October 18th or whatever it was. <laughs> oh my God. But you, you, you like Maka. You, you like the energy he, he gives to the world. Did you watch that Glastonbury performance that everyone raved about? Yeah, I did. Yeah. That was another one, in fact, they used AI and, and quite artfully on that occasion as well, I thought so. Um, but yeah, look, he 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 like he's national treasure and all the rest of it, isn't he? And uh, yeah, it's one of those things as well where, and I thought the documentary did a good job of kind of capturing some of this as well as that. Like when you've got a career like the Beatles and a song catalog like the Beatles, it's almost incomprehensible to sort of take as one. And it's only when you kind of break down, okay, like this is what happened in a single week in 1969 that you're like oh shit no that that's that's impressive that is uh also impressive i think picking the beatles as your first selection so bring us to your next one number four please uh yeah so my number four is uh significantly later although sharing a lot of sonics with the same time as it so happens it's this
my number four album on this list is Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. Um, an album that, I've got to be honest and say, wouldn't have been on this list or wouldn't have sort of been on any of my lists early on because, candidly, I found it a little bit kitsch, perhaps. There was a too much of a cosplay element happening. But over the years afterwards... Very sadly, I guess, the album took on a, a very different sort of air and a, a very kind of poignant air as we look back on what turned out to be her final studio work. Yeah, and probably impossible to answer the question, but do you reckon it would have grown in power and emotion and stature if she was still here today? Like Again, like I say, probably an impossible question, but as you say, there's an unavoidable, a, a unique effect on this for the obvious reasons. Yeah, well, I mean, even before her death, though, it had taken on a lot more power because, and I wouldn't describe myself as, you know, an avid red top reader at the time or anything, but like the level of kind of tabloid scrutiny and invasion of privacy, frankly, like as grim and damaging as it was, did sort of reveal a lot about, I suppose, her life and her relationship, which is documented on the album in... I suppose, far less stark terms, as it were, but you can start to trace the lines from the record to sort of the fractures that ended up appearing in her personal life that, you know, rather than necessarily demonstrating that everything was broken, heartbroken, granted, but not necessarily broken, and in fact, defiantly unbroken at times, um, yeah, you could kind of see the vulnerabilities, I suppose, that were very sadly and very publicly exposed in the years afterwards. And also, like, I remember uh, an abiding memory of that kind of, I guess, that culture is the day that she died, um, I remember when it was announced, and it was announced as breaking news on Sky News, whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, they had, like, a three or four minute package, video package, ready to go, which, of course, tells you only one thing, that they've been working on that for a long time. And that is the kind of weird state of play in, in, in journalism sometimes, where if you're anticipating a death, you know, whether it's the queen, you know, you're like, well, we got to, you know, we'll have a, we'll have a, a rough cut of a video somewhere and we'll, you know, have that raid go the second that the news comes through. But it's just such a sorry state of affairs when it's about a fucking 27 year old, you know, who's reaching the height of her musical prowess and then boom. And I, I just always remember that. I always remember that moment being like sitting there and being relatively new to journalism as well. And just being like, that is weird that they had such a, but they cobbled that together so quickly. Oh no, they've clearly had someone in the back working on that for months. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, again, I, I wasn't exactly finger on the pulse, although I suppose a lot of people can say, you know, that like the, the signs weren't great, as it were. Um, but yeah, like I've seen people kind of describe it as an inevitable event, um, which is incredibly tragic, of course. And like I say, adds sort of weight to this record, um, which, by the way, like is a really good pop record on its own. And I, you know, that is perhaps something that gets lost in amongst it. That this was kind of the product of becoming obsessed with kind of soul and blues and nineteen uh, sixties gospel music at a bar in Camden, and then when her relationship with Blake Fielder Civil, I think was his name, that when that hit a, hit the rocks, it sort of coalesced creatively. She'd been introduced to Mark Ronson by someone on her label, and he, while 
sometimes not the most subtle of hands. I think he suits this extremely well. And yeah, they produced a record that's short and sweet and sounds really good that stands up extremely well against a lot of what came after because you can definitely draw a line from kind of like Duffy and Adele and the, the, this kind of weird neo-soul revival, as it were, um, but probably didn't outdo this album either. So it no, stands on its own not, two no. feet as well as kind of being part of a wider story. You, uh, you mentioned Ronson there, of course, Valerie is the big, you know, big one for an awful lot of people still played to this day. And, you know, if, especially if you want to have the more upbeat remembrance. Uh, do we do we think that we've got to a stage now where, like, it's aged out and as much as, like, is it a, is it a pub trivia question now to be like, hey, who wrote that originally? Whose song was that originally? I think everyone knows, but, like, again, could you name another song by them? Do you oh, know? yeah, yeah. Again, though, this is also one of those of like. So, do you know who it is? Are you struggling or the Zootons? The Zootons, yeah, but I'm, yeah. but I wasn't sure if like because they're because they're that weird band where it's like, are they still torn? Probably off the back of that song. Like, ah, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I was going to say as well though, like that. You know, you say, oh, I think everybody knows this, but if you're of a different generation, I'm not sure you would. True. I'm not I'm, sure I'm, a lot of people under the age of I'm going to say 28. She certainly, did, yeah. she certainly did eclipse them. Well, no, well, they you know, shouldn't be shouting about the Zutons at the best times, call them, because um, they, they're terrible. Um, but the thing <laughs> is, <laughs> that might not be fair. I don't know that much about them. Uh, she was supposed to do a Bond song. Remember that? Didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's a common story of people not doing Bond songs. They're meant to be doing Bond songs or whatever. Yeah, I just wonder if people get prank phone calls of this. To be, like, when you see bands releasing, like, oh, this was meant to be the Bond song. We wrote this for Bond. And it was like, were you actually invited to do so? Well, in the case of Radiohead, I do think that's a legitimate question. But in the case of Quantum of Solace, apparently Amy Winehouse did meet uh, with the producers of, of of the film. And it was a, it was a very, like, apparently it was a very sad meeting. Uh, like, there was a story there last year uh, doing the rounds and I think it was yeah Barbara Broccoli who oversees the Bond franchise said that it was a, a very very distressing meeting she was not at her best and my heart really went out to her she was very fragile emotionally and you understood how she could create such moving material because she has a great depth of feeling but it was very very tragic an incredible talent with an incredible voice and an incredible person and it was just very very sad that Theme song on the end, of course, was recorded by Jack White and Alicia Keys. I don't know if Another Way to Die would have been the song that she did, but even Jack White himself did say that he got in because Amy Winehouse wasn't showing up to the sessions and wasn't delivering songs that they were asking her to do. So kind of a weird one because I think he's still to this day, people be like, oh, it's crazy that she was never asked to do a Bond song. And the truth is she was, but unfortunately, I guess the personal life struggles were there. But yeah, is, is it last question on this. Is it a hard album to go back to, do you think? Uh... No, because it's so musically good. It is the simple answer that I would say. I mean, like, there's layers to it, essentially. It, like, you can very much listen to this as just a strong pop album. Obviously, if you start to dig into it a little more and consider some of the lyrical content a little more and, like, rehab most notably, that's always going to be fairly uneasy in a sense. But as everyone who's kind of tap to toe as it comes on the radio nose still a banger so you know yeah, i think he's i think i think he can go back that's fair um let's have your third spot on the podium please my third spot on the podium was basically a dead heat with another album that i just decided to let out entirely i will give it its props in a second and it actually made it in because it's slightly easier to revisit so it's this one i've got these excuses 
They're tired and lame I don't need a pardon No, 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 no There's no one left to blame I'm leaving the table I'm out of the game Yeah, 2016, as I think uh, most people will remember, saw two legendary artists release awesome albums uh, literally days before their deaths. There was David Bowie and Blackstar in January, and then in November it was the turn of Leonard Cohen and his album You Want It Darker. Uh, like I say, I've picked the latter simply because I think it's an easier album to revisit. I think it's a slightly more pleasurable listen, as it were. But um, yeah, but frankly, both of them uh, you know, deserve mention here. Two great, great parting shots from two genuinely iconic musicians. Yeah, uh, when you started off, you're kind of, you're leading there. I thought you were going to say, we all remember t- 2016 as, of course, Celebrity Death Year. Because remember that? Like, it was just fucking every other week. They're dropping like Oh, flies, yeah, and yeah. who was it as well? Like, somebody passed away, though, on January 1st. Did they? But no, 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 the tone. Like, that's of, no, no, of 2017. Tone. And they, this is what I mean. Was it maybe one of the Eagles, I'm going to say? Anyway, because I, I just I distinctly remember so many people being like, you know, see you later, 2016. Thanks for nothing. Can't, thank God that's over. And Jesus. it was just like, no, no, it, it's going to keep happening. I do have, yeah, I, think, I do have a list, actually. Of, you, I, uh, actually I actually was going to try and grab one. So, yeah, please, by all means. And, yeah. uh, let's get morbid, everybody. Here is a list of celebrities who died in 2016. Okay. We all thought there was a curse going around, but as Cullum alludes to, it's just the passing of time and that there are more celebrities. But go on. Okay. David Bowie, Prince, Alan Rickman, Muhammad Ali, George Michael, Gene Wilder, Carrie Fisher, Leonard Cohen, Anton Yelchin, Harper Lee, Glenn Frey, Arnold Palmer... Terry Wogan, Alexis Arquette. Um, it just, <laughs> there's a that lot. That is, I mean, even right there, that is a murderer's row. And that is like, you just know there's some awful visual collage out there of them all jamming in heaven to get, like, oh, like I hate God, that thing. No. Where it's like, can you <laughs> no. imagine the, like, the incredible the music poster. that Bowie, Prince, yeah. and Cohen are making together? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, like someone from like ACDC also playing with them. I'm like, no, it would sound fucking horrendous. But yeah, that was a weird year. That was definitely a weird year. And this is, um, yeah, I, I, it's an interesting coin toss, Colin, because like Black Star by Bowie, as brilliant as it is, I can't say I ever go near it. And I think it's just too heavy. And, and in fairness, it's critic-proof because it is what it is. It's a it's an epitaph. It's a farewell statement. It's a brilliant construction. But like Jesus, you got to be in the fucking mood. I guess. Um, I guess Cohen is just that slightly more warmer presence in that regard. Well, it's an interesting contrast because I think the Bowie album seems to confront death and mortality and all of its monstrousness and its incomprehensible nature. Whereas the Leonard Cohen album, he seems to have it figured out, in a sense. And that, that's a very rare thing, really, because, you know, the idea of sort of contemplating mortality and all the rest of it is, well, by its nature, very complicated and also fairly well-worn path for uh, artists and musicians in general. Um, it's a lot more rare to hear almost like a a calm assurance, as it were, of like, you know, I'm checking out now and I'm totally cool with that. Uh, but that's kind of what this Leonard Cohen album has. Now, 
again, he was 82 years old at the time. He was extremely ill. It was basically recorded in his living room. So, he, you know, he, he'd come to terms with things in every sense. And I suppose given the way that his career had gone with this extraordinary second chapter post, you know, five years in a monastery and kind of financial troubles, putting him back out on tour, which ended up being just this triumph that sort of gave him a whole unique lease of life into uh, the 21st century. It was yeah, perhaps kind of fitting that, you know, he was looking back on a life well lived, I suppose, and, and fairly regret-free at that stage. It is weird that you mentioned because like he got screwed over by his accountant famously and I guess had to go back on tour and had to make albums again or whichever. But like, it's interesting that that led to, as you say, a genuinely fruitful thing. And I remember like my parents went to see him at least three times. I think it was, you know, they, even traveling as far as like over, over to Sligo to see him. My parents wouldn't have been huge gig goers, you know, but he cast a spell on them and cast a spell on an awful lot of people. And I, and it's a great regret of mine that I never went to see him live. I just should have gone. I just didn't go. And it was a stupid fucking decision. Uh, and also th- this album, um, am I right in saying I could be, I think his son helped him finish it or worked yep. on it with him, which is a lovely thing that they had that kind of bond at the end as well. And like, you know, what a way to kind of go out. But yeah, uh, Adam, you had your hand up earlier on. Yeah, I think like just in in terms of the contrast between the de- between Blackstar and, and this by Leonard Cohen, I think what it always felt like for me was that um, it was like, like David Bowie definitely made that record for him and him alone. You know what I mean? And, and like you can you can hear that. Um, it was like him writing his own kind of eulogy, I guess. But like it, it feels sonically like Leonard Cohen is like 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 Colm said, actively stepping off this mortal coil and like of his own accord almost. Whereas David Bowie feels like he's being ripped off. Does that make sense? Like yeah. even even the sonics are just like so frenetic and like dissonant and hard. It's like it's hard to listen to that record, you know what I mean? Because it does, it, it, like, I genuinely think that Bowie wanted it to sound like it was someone dying. Do you know what I mean? I think that's exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah, also, I mean, the, like, the, the other thing... Uh, what, what I would say is, I mean, like, it was like, without meaning to sound crass or anything, it was almost it was almost a fucking press release, in a way. It was kind of like, this is happening, and this is how I'm telling the world goodbye, and it was an amazing thing in that sense. And the last thing I'll say on the Bowie thing is I remember very vividly the morning that he died, being on the Lewis, going to work and like just everyone discovering it in real time on their phones. And then like working in an office that day where like we had a rule in the office where you'd only play music in the office on a Friday at five o'clock and someone in the office would pick five songs. But that day, the guy who like kind of ran the show there with that regard was like sent an all staff email and he was like, uh, I'm playing David Bowie all day. And I will have no objections about that. Yeah, and soak it forever. No yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Colin Co. Uh, no, I was just going to say two things there. One being, you know, that yeah, memory of David Bowie passing away as, and unfortunately we had it twice that year with Prince just uh, yeah. a few months later, um, sitting at the hot press office and basically like slowly turning to the page plan that was laid out beside me and just ripping it in two as you realize that the magazine was going to have to be redone before you went to press. But the other thing that I was going to say is that, like, Leonard Cohen, I don't mean to sound dismissive or, or funny when I say this, I, I love the guy, but he had been in his gravelly baritone kind of considering issues of spirituality and mortality for decades. It was like, his last album was the album he was born to make, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and and I remember at the time, and in fact, I can even remember 
after he passed away when we were recording No Encore. And we were talking about uh, a quote of his. There was kind of something along the lines of like, there's no greater satisfaction than putting your house in order. And this album sounded like a man who had its house in order and therefore kind of made it very comforting both to hear at the time and to go back to. Yeah, words for Jordan Peterson fans to live by there. Uh, number <laughs> two, please. Number two, I mentioned that I tried some variety, so I limited myself to only one album that was a one and done. It's this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, I treat this like my thesis. Well written topic, broken down into pieces. I introduce and produce words so confused. It's abuse how I juice up this beat like I'm dude. Two people both equal like I'm Gemini. I'd rather send me on if I jimmy on this lock, I can pop it. You can't stop it, drop it. Yeah, the miseducation of Lauren Hill is 25 years old now. That feels right. I mean, listening to it, I don't know if it does, it still sounds like fresh and vital. And maybe it's just the fact that there isn't an awful lot that's come that compares, but... God, what a record. You also forget the fact that she was 23 at the time. And I mentioned at the top that notion of the regret, the sort of what-ifs that come with uh, a final album or, you know, an album turning out to be final, as it were. Um, this has to be one of the top contenders in terms of, like, like, this was a woman who had a lot to say, who had talent to burn. And yeah, if things had turned out differently, who knows what uh, what we might have seen in the intervening decades. I mean, is this like a selfish thing to say that this album is so singular that maybe it's better that she never made another one? I mean, in a sense, and I mean, like, she did try that weird MTV unplugged thing which she actually released as a, a live album, but it was such a departure. And like she, she, like she was also really, really kind of kicking against the pricks at that stage, so to speak. She'd had an awful time of it in terms of the kind of backstage politics and all the rest of it, in terms of finances. She talked about the like repressing agendas and unrealistic expectations and even kind of saboteurs, as it were. And yeah, very definitely veered as far from what everyone else wanted her to do as was possible. Um, yeah, like... Could she have replicated this sort of quality? It's a difficult question. Honestly, though, at 23 years of age, with her, like, her flow is unreal. I think everybody knew that she could sing because the Fugees were, like, a pop crossover hit. And she was there, primarily a singer, given that the other two were going to rap. You listen to this and you're like, God, like, there's nothing to stop her from just storytelling of which she had many many stories um yeah for for years after that but but also like let's not let this what if distract from the fact that it's an extraordinary album it's yeah excellent. <laughs> no it is and it's always it's always up there it's always hailed as classic and it should be um was she a victim though of a media that didn't quite understand her because she was kind of very controversial in some respects and it did feel a bit like 
she was painted as a militant black woman who hated white people. And, you know, I don't think that's actually true. Um, but at the same time, I think that maybe there, like she was kind of a bit, a bit of character assassination. I think it kind of came. Yeah. Along look, her. I think it was kind of a perfect storm in many ways where like, yeah, the media definitely did her no favors. As I say, she was 23 years old. So you can absolutely imagine that she was kind of being seen as a cash cow and that there was the, you know, all too typical story of music industry kind of seeing someone that they think they can kind of pull a fast one on or that they can sort of make a quick buck. Um, She was raising a family, which is obviously mentioned on the album, but that definitely kind of changed her priorities and her personal life and her career and all the rest of it. There was kind of bad blood uh, between herself and Wyclef Jean in particular, and I don't think that necessarily did uh, her story any favours, as it were, or, or did her career any favours. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff to kind of... It felt, like, it felt like the word difficult followed her around, which again is something that follows around women in the industry, black women in the industry. It's kind of a very kind of easy catch-off for people to just reduce somebody. And again, it's an interesting reduction in light of this album in particular, that you would go out of your way to kind of try and take her down in that regard, given the output of the actual music. Yeah, and but I think what's more as well, you know, these are the sort of things that would normally maybe be barriers that prevent an album or follow-up album arriving within two years or three years. But it's not death knell of a career stuff. Um, now, granted, I think her kind of seclusion from public was uh, voluntary as much as anything. Um, but yeah, it, it's not the sort of stuff, let's put it this way, that you know, absolutely could not have been overcome. I think it just left her with a very bad taste in her mouth. I think it let a little bit too much time pass um, for certain people to still be invested. But yeah, we'll we'll kind of remain one of those what ifs. And then it should also be said, she's never done herself any favours with like turning up late to live performances and all the rest I of it. I was going to say she she's the Axl Rose, uh, you know, of her generation in some respects in that regards. But at the same time, is that not her kind of taking some of the power back and being like, you, fuck, you guys fucked me over for a while. I've got your money. I'll make you wait. I mean, oh, that's I, haven't a- gone, I haven't gone to a Lauren Hill show. Maybe I'd be pissed off, but I'd also kind of, I would now anticipate that to be the case. You might be waiting an extra hour and you might only get a half an hour show i don't know that's frustrating of course but at the same time i don't know i mean you know know what you're buying your ticket for yeah but um i think it is uh, a classic sort of uh what did they say you know don't don't cry because it's over smile because it happens sort of a thing you know we got this record um that's a better legacy than most musicians will ever leave behind adam yeah, this is just like, it, it kind of fits in the same world to me as like Andre 3000 and the fact that like he's never made an album, you know, and that album probably will never come. But it's also like every time we get something from him, it's like it makes it extra special. So I think the same applies in the context of Lauren Hill only doing one record. It's like we have this. This is what we have. And it's like a really, really special thing. It's not diluted. It's like it's wholly concentrated in this one body of work and you know whether that was meant to be or whether it was not meant to be like whether it was kind of an active thing or whether it was something that happened over time and um, i know with andre 3000 it, it's very much an active thing where you know he said quite openly in interviews that he just is far too anxious about what people will think if he does put something out and he kind of feels like maybe it's a bit too late now it could have been the same with lauren hill there might have been a time like a window of time that was just missed due to all of those misgivings with the music industry but like you say smile because it happened 
Well, listen, we're going to smile now as Cullum's number one veers into focus. I have to ask you, Cullum, for your number one choice, I mean, you must have been spoiled rotten with a clip, so I have to ask you, what track did you pick from Daft Punk's Random Access Memories? Dude, I was genuinely going to clip like three seconds of that and pretend to drop it at number five just for you. Uh, Thank you. No, as it happens, it was a very easy selection for me at number one as well in terms of the greatest final album of all time, my vote will always go for this. Yeah, the final album of Simon and Garfunkel. It was Bridge Over Troubled Water. That is the only living boy in New York taken from the record. Uh, They made five albums in total. Uh, That was number five. And yeah, it is as good a way to finish as not only we've seen, but frankly, as you can really imagine. Yeah, and I'm going to have to imagine, Colin, because uh, this is, uh, I've said it before, Alvaretti was in the show months ago. I think she picked two Simon and Garfunkel songs. She, she had a Paul five. Simon song and a Simon and Garfunkel song. So Which yeah. is fine. It's allowed, it's encouraged. But uh, this Simon. is the part where Dave embarrasses himself by saying that there's something of a blind spot, Colin. I, of course, am familiar, but I've never, I don't know if I've ever sat, sat down and listened to an album start to finish. And surely I shouldn't start with the last one, right? I won't get it at all on an emotional <laughs> level. No, well, perhaps not. I mean, listen, you know, it's not the most challenging of albums, to be fair, and there are bangers. Like, you'll know a good chunk of it, really. Like, I mean, you've got the title track, you've got that, you've got The Boxer, you've got Cecilia, you've got So Long, Frank Lloyd Wright, but, you know, even some of these songs, you start to do your digging and, like, that's a reference to Art Garfunkel, who was planning on going away and retraining as an architect. So as the sort of end days of the band were approaching, a song like that is a nod to it. The Only Living Boy in New York is about Art Garfunkel going to film uh, Catch-22 in Mexico, and Paul Simon was left behind feeling like The Only Living Boy in New York. Um, So again, a little like that Beatles album, some of the strain uh, that, you know, kind of contributes to the end of the partnership is on show, but it actually feeds into the brilliance of what we get. You uh, you said that this is always your number one go-to. No question. Why? So, I suppose there's two things. First of all, yeah, it, it is a stunning album. Uh, and the other is that any sort of negativity attached to it in the fact that, obviously, they did drift apart. They did fall out somewhat. They reunited for gigs, then fell out again, blah, blah, blah. But any sort of sense of what would have been is counterbalanced by the fact that we got Paul Simon's solo career on the back of it. And say what you want about what he and Artie might have done in the future, they definitely wouldn't have made Graceland. And I think that's the thing that, you know, even with the Beatles, like, listen, like I said, I love Macca. I respect a lot of what John Lennon and George Harrison did in their solo careers, but you know, you did want more Beatles. And there was definitely a period in the early 70s where their solo output just did not compare to what they did as a band. Whereas here, you can kind of say, you know what, 
we got Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel combining at their peak, and then we got Paul Simon going out and doing his own thing, which was full of this kind of like defiant reinvention that I just don't think he would have had were he writing for someone else. It's kind of the best of both worlds, and that I think is why you can really say, wow, what a what a perfect way to sort of switch chapter in a career. I actually reviewed a Paul Simon album on the radio this year, his most recent one, Seven Psalms. Uh, and again, as you might imagine, I was like, well, this is intimidating because, sure, I know some surface level stuff here, but not really. But I actually was quite taken by it. Um, very much a treatise on mortality and, you know, just kind of his, you know, like the, the twilight years and staring down the barrel of the end of a life, a life lived, a life of accomplishment. And in this case, you know, a lot of genuine musical achievement and you know it was an interesting experiment for me to try and try and sound intellectual while reviewing this thing but i think i just about got away with it but yeah it's weird like like i mean like i associate this with like you know records in my family home growing up and just kind of that whole era that for some reason just blitzed by me as, as i've said numerous times Colm, i'm a new metal kid and that's just who i am um, well we'll dive into <laughs> this someday mate uh, you, you'll be surprised yeah, is there like is there like a sorry is there a drowning pool remix Adam go on. <laughs> um two things first thing I want to do is just immediately correct myself because I've looked up Alva's top five and it was actually Art Garfunkel that she doubled down on not Paul Simon see I didn't know um, the difference because I'm a moron so <laughs> Philistine Philistine the highest order um the first ever Simon and Garfunkel record I, I listened to was this um I have the original copy that my folks had on vinyl in my collection at the moment and it's like, it's just like, it feels so of a time, but so timeless at the same time. Like it's just that songwriting just transcends the age that it was in. It was like, you know, they, I don't know. I feel like them, you put themselves and the Beatles kind of in that same world. Whereas like, you know, I think together they were absolutely fantastic, you know? And I think both of those acts moved quite parallel to each other in that world. You know what I mean? Like it, it felt like they both kind of had their own thing going on and they really followed through with it um, every time. But it's, like I can't recommend it enough as a record. Like, and you know, I would be picky enough about what I listen to as well sometimes, but like, this is just absolutely fun. It's a fantastic record. It's a fantastic pick. Any, um, any honorable mentions, Cullum? Uh Like I say, the one and dones are kind of the, the obvious uh, ones to note here, really. So uh, I was very tempted to put The Postal Service, which is an album that will always stick in my mind. And honestly, I I, I went back and checked, double-checked, because I was like, was there definitely no follow-up there? It feels like there should have been a follow-up, but uh, yeah. Yeah, they got back together for a tour, I think, yeah. 20th anniversary or something, maybe, or there or thereabouts, or some anniversary. And um, for myself, like I say, unfortunately, time was just really fucking against me this week, so I didn't want to half-ass it, but I had a short list in terms of at least honourable mentions. Um, Johnny Cash, American Four, The Man Comes Around. Yeah. I know there is an American Six and an American Five, whatever, but they're posthumous and they're, like, kind of, you know, cobbled together, but, like, that is an incredible one. Uh in Utero, uh, which I, I'm, I'm deliberately mispronouncing that for one <laughs> listener. Uh, in Utero by Nirvana, of course, which always makes it into these lists. For one and done for me, which I did pick in one and done before when we did that as a top five. Uh, Go Tell Fire to the Mountain by Wu Life, of course. Uh, an album I remain obsessed with. Dillinger Escape Plan's Farewell Album, Dissociation, I quite liked it. Uh, Mac Miller, Swimming. I know oh. Circles came out as a posthumous mm. race, but I think Swimming is pretty incredible. And you can't really go wrong with Closer Boy Joy Division, can you, Adam? Um, I've got two. I think uh, Blonde by Frank Ocean is probably a pretty strong shout. He's going to put out another album. No, he's not. Yes, he is. <laughs> I don't I, I don't think he's going to do it. 
I really don't. Um, I think I think he's just like completely, completely finished. Like, if anything, the Coachella thing was like such a glaring, a glaring thing where he's just like, "Fuck this shit." Do you know what I mean? He's like, "I can do what I like." So, and in fairness, he can because he's just got like that status. But also, one I did um, mention recently on the show. Um, in line with my top five producers was is Donuts by Jay Dilla. I think, like as far as final albums go, it does carry that similar weight to the Leonard Cohen and um, you know the Black Star to a degree. Obviously, he didn't have that. He, he didn't have a very long life, unfortunately. But like that album was finished on his deathbed and and came out days before he died and people still talk about it. it like that he, he affected how drummers play their drums and he played he played on a drum machine it's it's incredible the 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 last and impact that, that album had and yeah definitely would be in probably my number one i would say um but yeah lots of good stuff and that album does have that quite nice quite funny story about how he didn't want anybody listening to the material he was working on but his mom snuck a listen while he was getting dialysis treatment and he found out and he was furious. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know. I actually, I didn't know that. That's a very interesting fact. Okay, and of course, last mention, the number one. Random access memories, everybody. Okay, listen, uh, Cullum, <laughs> thank you so, so much for coming back to the show. You are loved. Oh, thank you for having me, brother. And uh, yeah, next time we will be in person, I promise. I hope so. It's been way too long. I can't I'll remember the last time we met in person. Like, it's that long. I'll, I'll go on record now and say I've never met Cullum in person. I mean, you're not ready for it. No one is. It's a, <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting three years. It's a tour de force of exuberance. Right. Um, speaking of a tour de force of exuberance, his name is Sonic Architect Adam, who has guided this <laughs> sure one remotely this week. And thank you very much for doing so. Yeah, it's mad that we used to do this every week, isn't it? I keep like... Keep Don't even tempt my, the idea of remi- it going back I, to it. I hate it. No, I just, I, it's so weird. Like, I, in comparison, it just feels like we never left the studio um, since we kind of got back in there. You know, uh, what is it going on? A year and a half now? It's been around. Um, it's been around. Now, look, it's okay to do this every now and then. And, you know, it's 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 reserved for elite level guests like Cormoregan right there. Okay, and I'm Dave Hanready. This has been No Encore. There will be No Encore. And we're back next week. Go listen to some cool final albums, guys. Bye bye.